Okay, I think everyone is in for the most part. So we're finally here, the end of the Old Testament. And, uh, you know, this is uh, kind of a challenge here going through the Old Testament. But believe me, some of you, if you haven't read the book of Matthew recently, you know, we sometimes uh, make it sound like uh, Paul was the real theologian. Certainly not Jesus. I mean, he did some miracles and stuff. Read the book of Matthew. Um, there are some, some real challenges there, and that's what we're going to talk about next time. So let's pray as we begin. Dear Father, please come, come close to each one of us just now. Open our minds. Help us to see things more clearly. And may our understanding of this book just now bring us closer to a trusting friendship with you. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, always things change a little bit as plans. I was going to spend quite a bit of time on Esther, but there's just so much in Malachi, so we're just going to do the book of Malachi today. Four chapters, but it is just really some meaty stuff. But let me just say this about Esther. Esther is a book where you do not find the word God in the book of Esther, unless you read it in a paraphrase translation like the Living Bible or something. But um, here's what I think is just uh, really neat about the book of Esther. Look where things are kind of chronologically here. We've been through um, Haggai, Zechariah, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther in, in a timeline falls in right here in the middle, 480 BC or so. And what I find remarkable about the book of Esther is this describes the people who chose not to go back to Jerusalem. Remember, it was 42,000 or so that came out, and these are the people that stayed behind. And you just might think, well, God wanted them to go back, right? If you don't go back, God's not with you. Well, these people didn't go back. They stayed behind. And we have an incredible story about how God was with them very much, how he helped Esther. And it's a remarkable story. And I think it's just further illustration, just like the book of Jeremiah. For those of you who remember last year, it's just amazing. The people rejected again and again and again and again. And God was with them all the way out to Egypt until finally they killed the prophet Jeremiah. And so the, the problem is with us always, not with God. God is always there, always willing to respond, um, even when we do not follow the ideal path. So I think it's kind of neat about the story of Esther. But now we come to Malachi, and I want to spend some time here on uh, this book, and the first couple verses are a real challenge. But here's kind of the overall theme. We have this back and forth. It's kind of interesting. The Lord says to his people, I have always loved you. But they reply, how have you shown your love for us? In other words, boy, it sure doesn't seem like it. And then later on, the Lord says to the priests, children honor their parents and servants honor their masters. I'm your father. Why don't you honor me? I'm your master. Why don't you respect me? You despise me, but yet notice the people ask, how have we despised you? We certainly haven't done that. And then later on, God says, you have said terrible things about me, but you ask, what have we said about you? So the, God is saying the reality and the people here are just, what? That's not true. So it's kind of interesting the way it's worded here. But let's go back to the beginning. The Lord says to his people, I have always loved you, but they reply, how have you shown your love for us? And the Lord answers, Esau and Jacob were brothers, but I have loved Jacob and his descendants and have hated Esau and his descendants. And as many of you know, Paul quotes this in Romans 9. And I think that that has been just greatly 
misunderstood. And uh, when we get to Romans, we'll, we'll talk about this verse as well because Romans 9 cannot be understood unless we've understood Romans 1 through 8. It all ties together. So to take it in isolation um, can lead us down a dangerous road. But let's just ask the question here. Does God hate Esau and his descendants? It seems very plain. We take the Bible as it reads. God hates Esau and his descendants. But I think there's some something important here. Let me just read one interpretation. This is an interpretation of the book of Romans, but it comes from this passage. God hates Esau. One conclusion. I have argued that this passage gives strong support to a traditional Calvinistic interpretation of God's election, God's choice. God chooses those who will be saved on the basis of his own will, and notice, not on the basis of anything, works or faith, whether foreseen or not in those human beings so chosen. So God predestines some for goodness and righteousness, and he chooses others to be vessels of wrath and destruction. And again, when we get to Romans, we'll spend more time on this. I just want to deal now with the words, God hates, hated Esau. And something very important to realize is there's this expression, it's called oriental hyperbole, that is, uh, was very much a part of the literature at this time. The words of Jesus are filled with this. So hyperbole, as you know, is a rhetorical exaggeration, not intended to be taken literally, that produces emphasis, verbal extravagance, emphasis on the extremes. And if you don't think that this is present, let me just give you some examples. Jesus would say, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. So are you a Christian? Do you hate your parents? Do you hate your wife? Do you hate your children? Um, it's, a, it's a requirement. No, this is... Uh, the, this is an expression. It's part of this uh, hyperbole. We exaggerate the extremes. And again, it's nice to have these other versions here. The Message Bible translates, anyone who comes to me but refuses to let go of father, mother, spouse, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even one's own self, can't be my disciple. So it's, it's saying things in a strong way, but it's to make an emphasis of a relative degree of one being over another. Here's just another example. Jesus would say, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. But read on. For a penny you can buy two sparrows, yet not one sparrow falls to the ground without your father's consent. As for you, even the hairs of your head have been counted, so do not be afraid. So be afraid of God. Do not be afraid. God cares about the little sparrow. Okay, so we have this way of uh, things are put in extremes very much. And, and that's, I think, how we're to understand um, this God loved Esau, or God loved Jacob, God hated Esau. But our question really is, was that God's choice or was that Esau's choice? Does God love some more than others? Does God love some more in this room than others? Or is his love at a 100% maximum for each and every one of us here? Are we all on kind of a relative spectrum in terms of God's love? You know, in the book of John, I just put two of these. There are several examples of this where Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there. And later, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, and this is, of course, referring to John, uh, did Jesus love John more than the other disciples? Didn't care so much for Matthew, but John was really, really loved him. Um, 
How do we understand this? Is it not that, uh, I mean, who perhaps responded the most, came the closest to Jesus? Um, I think it was John. Who was there at the cross? It was John. Uh, we have these incredible stories. The Gospel of John is so different than the other Gospels. Uh, we'd know nothing about the woman caught in adultery. Uh, we wouldn't know that Jesus washed the feet of Judas. I mean, so many incredible things in the book of John. Again, was it Jesus' choice or was it John's choice? I mean, we just have to say, how does God look, view his enemies, the life of Jesus, the ultimate place to answer that? But just some things we've covered in the Old Testament so far. The Lord says, the people I love are doing evil things. Okay, who does God love? People who are doing evil things. Does he like that they're doing evil things? Of course not. But he loves those people who are doing evil things. And Jesus would say, Jerusalem, you, Jerusalem, you kill the prophets and stone the messengers God has sent you. How many times I wanted to put my arms around all your people. Now notice, who does God want to put his arms around? He's talking about the people who kill the prophets, who stone the messengers. How does God feel about those people? How many times I wanted to put my arms around all your people, just as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not let me. Again, who cuts things off? I think in story after story in the Bible, we see it is our choice, our free will choice to reject God's love, to reject truth, to cut God off, and then what can God do? But you see, how does he feel? Boy, I wanted to wrap my arms around those people who were doing uh, just the worst things imaginable. Again, in Jeremiah, just to emphasize the point here, you have brought this on yourself by abandoning the Lord your, your God when he led you on the way. Your own wickedness will correct you. Your unfaithful ways will punish you. You should know and see how evil and bitter it is for you if you abandon the Lord your God. Okay, We choose to cut God off, and that has the consequences. Judah, you brought this on yourself by the way you've lived and by the things you've done. Your sin has caused this suffering. It, your sin, and sin, I think if we were to put all the verses together and the stories together about sin. Sin is ultimately a rebellious, disconnected, distrustful attitude and relationship with God. That naturally leads to sinful actions, stealing, murder, and all of that. But ultimately, we decide in our mind, we cut God off, and that is what stabs us through the heart. Now, uh, we didn't talk about this in Ezekiel, but now is just a great time just to deal with this God's choice or our choice. Um, and, and this relates to just so many important issues of consequence. I'm just going to read this whole chapter in Ezekiel because I think it makes it so clear. God's choice or our choice. The Lord spoke to me and said, What is this proverb people keep repeating in the land of Israel? The parents ate the sour grapes, but the children got the sour taste. In other words, the parents sin and the children suffer because of the parents' sin. But notice, as surely as I am the living God, says the sovereign Lord, you will not repeat this proverb, proverb in Israel anymore. The life of every person belongs to me, the life of the parent as well as that of the child. The person who sins is the one who will die. Now, everyone's died on planet Earth, right? So this is referring to more than just the average uh, death by a car accident or cancer. This is referring to something much more significant. Now, we get some examples. Suppose there is a truly good man, righteous and honest. He doesn't worship the idols of the Israelites 
or eat the sacrifices offered at forbidden shrines. He doesn't seduce another man's wife. It's a long description. He doesn't cheat or rob. He returns what a borrower gives him as security. He feeds the hungry and gives clothes to the naked. He's a good person. He doesn't lend money for profit. He refuses to do evil and gives an honest decision in any dispute. Such a man obeys my commands and carefully keeps my laws. He is righteous and he will live. Now, suppose this man has a son who robs and kills, who does any of these things that the father never did. He eats sacrifices offered at forbidden shrines and seduces other men's wives. He cheats the poor, he robs, he keeps what a borrower gives him as security. He goes to pagan shrines, worships disgusting idols, and lends money for profit. Will he live? No, he will not. Again, in a much more significant sense here. He has done all these, these disgusting things and so he will die. He will to be blamed for his own death. It's his choice. Now, and I love how many examples here. Suppose this second man has a son. He sees all the sins his father practiced, but does not follow his example. He doesn't worship the idols of the Israelites or eat the sacrifices offered at forbidden shrines. He doesn't seduce another man's wife or oppress anyone or rob anyone. He returns what a borrower gives him as security. He feeds the hungry, gives clothing to the naked, refuses to do evil, doesn't lend money for profits. The same list. He keeps my laws and obeys my commands. He will not die because of his father's sins, but he will certainly live. His father, on the other hand, cheated and robbed and always did evil to everyone. And so he died because of the sins he himself had committed. But you ask, why shouldn't the son suffer because of the father's sins? I mean, this was clearly not uh, understood in Jesus' time. Remember, they walked by a blind, blind man and the disciples said, who sinned, this man or his parents? Uh, lepers in that time were cursed by God. Obviously, they're suffering, so God must have done it. The answer is that the sin did what was right and good. Children don't suffer because of the sins of their parents. Now, of course, that is true in a sense. If your father is an alcoholic and beats you every night, yes, there is a consequence of rebellion that goes through many generations. But God does not arbitrarily punish the children for the sins of their parents. Notice this man, he kept my laws, followed them carefully, and so he will certainly live. It is the one who sins who will die. A son is not to suffer because of his father's sins, nor a father because of the sins of his son. Good people will be rewarded for doing good, and evil people will suffer for the evil they do. I mean, this would strongly, in my mind, go against this view that I just read about the interpretation of Romans 9, which is it's entirely God's choice. He chooses some to do this. He chooses others to do this. I mean, no, it's our choice. If someone stops sinning and keeps my laws, if he does what is right and good, he will not die. He will certainly live. All his sins will be forgiven and he will live because he did what is right. Do you think I enjoy seeing evil people die? Good question. No, I would rather see them repent and live. But if a righteous person stops doing good and starts doing all the evil, disgusting things that evil people do, will he go on living? No. None of the good he did will be remembered. And this is why, um, um, yes, I think we can have assurance of salvation, but uh, don't take away freedom to at some point change your mind and decide, no, I don't really want to be a member of God's kingdom anymore. I mean, this describes a going back and forth. At one point, yes, was doing good things, was part of God's kingdom. Uh, life goes on and we decide, no, that's not something we really want to do anymore. We do have the freedom to choose. And when we choose in the highest sense of freedom, uh, that's an incredible thing. 
So notice, for this person, none of the good he did will be remembered. He will die because of his unfaithfulness and his sins. But you say, what the Lord does isn't right. Listen to me, you Israelites. Do you think my way of doing things isn't right? It is your way that isn't right. When a righteous person stops doing good and starts doing evil and then dies, he dies because of the evil he has done. And finishing up, it's so repetitive, but I just want to get here to the bottom line. Don't turn away from all turn away from all the evil you are doing. And notice, don't let your sin destroy you. Not an arbitrary choice on God's part. It's it's our decision. Esau uh, chose poorly, and uh, I would say God poured out everything to try to reach Esau and the Edomites, his descendants, and they rejected, rejected, rejected. They were cut off from God, and they experienced separation. God's wrath, God's anger, um, all of those things. But again, their, their call, not God's. And going back to Jeremiah again, this just, uh, I think, an incredible verse. God would say to these people, and remember, these people just rejected God totally. You read the end of the book of Jeremiah, they said, well, we're going to sacrifice to the queen of heaven, a totally pagan God. And God would say, very well then, I will give you freedom, the freedom to die, by war, disease, starvation. Because um, freedom, I mean, to have real love, you have to be free to reject love. God can't force love on anyone. And so when people of a free will choose to cut themselves off and God tries to do everything he can, he has no choice but to respect that, that freedom. So again, coming back uh, to Malachi, after this first message to the people, we get a message to the priests. Remember, God says, you don't respect me, you don't honor me, you despise me, and yet you ask, what? How have we despised you? And here's what I think is really incredible. After this, uh, this message to the priests, we get a clear message on this is what the priesthood was to accomplish. It is the duty of priests to teach the true knowledge of God. People should go to them to learn my will because they are the messengers of the Lord Almighty. But now you priests have turned away from the right path. Your teaching has led many to do wrong. You have broken the covenant I made with you. Now notice, I think what we are to associate with priests, and as we'll see, you and I are called to be priests as well, our duty to teach a true knowledge of God. Notice what's the result of preaching a false knowledge of God. Eternal life is to know God. The words here are so significant. The people of Judah have broken their promise to God and done a horrible thing in Jerusalem. And all over the country, they have defiled the temple. And as many of you know, there's a lot of talk about a cleansing of the temple. And what does that mean? Is there a, a dirty building in heaven somewhere that needs to be uh, swept out? And not time to go through all the verses, but ultimately, what is the temple? Verse after verse in the New Testament. Don't you know that you are the temple? You are the temple. And what is it that cleanses the temple? In an ultimate sense, it is restoring a true knowledge of God, a true knowledge of God which restores trust, which restores relationship, which leads to healing and ultimately the cleansing of the temple, which is uh, not so much about a, a dietary message, you are the temple, so don't eat cheese, but ultimately uh, it is a message about what goes on upstairs in the mind. Okay, so we'll, we'll finish here on these first few verses in Malachi because it's just a great... Uh, launching point for next week, getting into the Gospels. Look, I am sending my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Now, who's that referring to? 
Jesus would quote this, referring to John the Baptist. But then notice what will happen. Then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you look for so eagerly is surely to come, says the Lord Almighty. And notice the description. Now, does this fit for Jesus? But who will be able to endure it when he comes? Who will be able to stand and face him when he appears? And our mind imagines all kinds of uh, terrifying things. Does this really fit for Jesus? Um, I think it does. But let's just keep that in mind and let's backtrack. We left this out in Ezra and Nehemiah, but it sets the stage for the people that rejected (laughs) Jesus. Uh, I think it's significant to know what happened in the hundreds of years leading up to the coming of Jesus. And what happened was, I mean, the Bible is entirely a book of rebellion up to the point of Ezra and Nehemiah, going after the pagan gods, fertility cults. Uh, Remember, even Solomon sacrificed his children. I mean, it's rebellion, rebellion, rebellion. Noah and the flood, it's just rebellion all the way through. But something remarkable happened coming out of this time when they came back to Jerusalem. And just as evidence to point to this a little bit, we read about Nehemiah. Notice how he disciplined the people. I reprimanded the men, called down curses on them, beat them, and pulled out their hair. And then I made them take an oath in God's name that never again would they or their children intermarry with foreigners. And when Jesus came to his own people, were they still intermarrying with other religions? No, that really stopped. And this is a really shocking here, the end of Ezra. It's really sad because there were all these people, they were intermarried, and notice what they did. Now we must make a solemn promise to our God that we will send these men, these women and their children away. This is the list of the men who had foreign wives. And Ezra 10 includes this long, long list of all the men who had foreign wives. And the book ends, they divorced them and sent them and their children away. They really started to obey. They stopped intermarrying. Uh, We read about uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. They weren't keeping the Sabbath. Uh, They were selling things on the Sabbath, so they closed the gates and strictly enforced Uh, Sabbath observance. Again, Nehemiah is running around pulling hair out of people's uh, beards if you don't do anything right. And what we come to here is the people in Jesus' day, I mean, just look at this incredible list. Were they interested in the law? Boy, were they. Were they trying to obey the law? Did they think it was important? Yes. Did they read their Bibles? Remember Jesus said, you search the scriptures, you read the Bible every day. Uh, Did they go to church, synagogue? Faithfully. Were they still intermarrying with other religions? No. Still involved in uh, idolatry? No. Paying tithe? Remember Jesus said, uh, you even tithe the, the seeds and the anise. They're very careful with these things. Evangelism? Remember Jesus said, you send a missionary to the other end of the earth to win one convert. And when you do, you make him twice as deserving as going to hell as you yourself. So they were involved in evangelism. Health reform? Yes, they were known for that. The Sabbath, um, why did they come by to break legs? Because they were going to be late for Sabbath and they needed to break legs so that they'd die a little faster so that they could make it home to keep the Sabbath. Now, I'm not putting down any of the things on this list, but if you were just an angel in heaven and you're watching rebellion, 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 the flood, Sodom, Gomorrah, um, all of this, might you be tempted to turn to God and say, boy, you finally did it. You finally have a people who are obeying the blueprint. And it looks like, wow, this is a good time to come, right? 
I think it's an interesting question. Why did God wait so long to show up in human form? And I think uh, an explanation I like is that he came to a people who outwardly seemed to be doing a, you know, a, a good list of things. What does it say? I think it, it's a very important message to us that there's something more important than keeping the right list of things. Now, we, we read this verse in Malachi about how, uh, how who can endure his coming. But just listen to the description here between Jesus and the Pharisees. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to listen to my message. You can't endure it. You are the children of your father, the devil, these people who are doing all those good things, and you want to follow your father's desires. And they asked Jesus, were we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon in you? And I am telling you the truth, Jesus replied, before Abraham was born, I am. And they knew the significance of those words. The God who talked to Moses, the I am. And outrage. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and left the temple. Uh, they really could not endure a God who was like Jesus. And so as we read on here, who will be able to stand and face him when he appears? For he will be like a blazing fire that refines metal or like a strong soap that whitens clothes. He will sit and judge like a refiner of silver, watching closely as the dross is burned away. And again, is that really our picture of Jesus, the one who was, uh, you know, said, uh, I am meek and mild, describing himself. But again, going back to Jeremiah, this language is just used. Notice God's message to Jeremiah, very similar. He touched his lips and said, listen, I am giving you the words you must speak. Today I give you authority over nations and kingdoms. I mean, this is the man that was thrown in a well, stoned to death, and he was given authority over nations and kingdoms to uproot, to pull down, to destroy, to overthrow, to build and to plant. And what's being described here is God gave Jeremiah a message and the rejected message is what overthrew the message, the, the whole nation. It's emphasized in Jeremiah 5. Jeremiah, because these words, these people have said such things, I will make my words like a fire in your mouth. The people will be like wood and the fire will burn them up. Okay, they rejected the message. They were burned up by it. And Jeremiah would say, my message is like a fire and like a hammer that breaks rocks in pieces. Same thing with Jesus. Came as a refining fire. And as that was rejected, the results were just as if being destroyed by a fire. So when Jesus would say, I came to this world to judge so that the blind should see and those who see should become blind. Okay, God didn't arbitrarily blind people, but the light of the world came and people either saw or they became blind. It had a very much a softening or a hardening effect. And how about this for a clear verse on the judgment? This is how the judgment works. Great. Let's find out. The light has come into the world, but the people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. So the light came into the world and, hey, you either enter the light or you go off into the darkness. Jesus, I mean, the brightest light ever, um, you either go one way or another when you're exposed to something like that. This applies to us as well. I mean, as we go through and read the Gospels, as we come closer to the reality of who God is through Jesus, we either like that, we enter in, or we, uh, we reject it. Notice, this is how it works for us. Those who reject me and do not accept my message have one who will judge them. Who's that? 
The words I have spoken will be their judge on the last day. On the last day, um, the words, the actions, everything about Jesus. I mean, everything we read and hear about Jesus uh, through Scripture and through the influence of the Holy Spirit, I mean, that works on us. That is the judge on the last day. How do we respond to that? Okay, so coming back to Malachi, he will sit and judge like a refiner of silver, watching closely as the dross is burned away. And notice, and here's, I think, what very much applies to us. He will purify the Levites, the priests, refining them like gold or silver so that they may once again offer acceptable sacrifices to the Lord. Um, We don't have time to include all these verses, but you know the wonderful verses like come as a living sacrifice. Uh, Then once more the Lord will accept the offerings brought to him by the people of Judah and Jerusalem as he did in former times. So Jesus came to purify a people. And I think just as a little uh, important meaning on that, in Revelation, he has made us a kingdom of priests. I mean, this is after the cross. Uh, We are to be a kingdom of priests. And uh, remember the verse we just read in Malachi. What is the duty of priests? To teach the true knowledge of God. And we talked about how that true knowledge of God, boy, if it's false, temple's defiled. If it's true, temple is cleansed. So um, I think our purpose is just like Jesus. What did Jesus do? He came, I came to reveal the Father. I came to make you known. Eternal life is to know God. I've completed my mission, which is I've revealed your character. That's our mission as well. And so the function of the priests here in First Peter Come to the Lord, the living stone, rejected by people as worthless, but chosen by God as valuable. Come as living stones and let yourselves be used in building the spiritual temple. I mean, we are priests in the temple. We are stones in the temple. And very clearly, several times, we are the temple. And notice, where you will serve as holy priests to offer spiritual and acceptable sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. For the scripture says, I chose a valuable stone, which I am placing as the cornerstone in Zion, and whoever believes in him will never be disappointed. This stone is of great value for you that believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone which the builders rejected as worthless turned out to be the most important of all. And another scripture says, this is the stone that will make people stumble, the rock that will make them fall. They stumbled because they did not believe in the word. Such was God's will for them. God chose it that way. No, they did. But notice, but you are a chosen race, the king's priests, the holy nation, God's own people. What's the purpose again of the priests? Chosen to proclaim the wonderful acts of God, which is how it is in the good news. Other versions have it more like this in the New Living. You can show others the goodness of God. It's always the same function of the priest. To to follow the high priest, what is he doing? He's revealing God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So I think as we go into the New Testament now, Uh, The emphasis very much in every word, action, deed of Jesus. We want to see God. We want to know what God is like. And um, I think there are a number of things that are not uh, entirely intuitive in our own mental picture of who God is. So uh, we have some, some challenging things coming up in the next few weeks. All right, let's pray. Father, please help each one of us to uh, receive as close as possible Um, a clear picture of who you are. Uh, We ask that your Holy Spirit would uh, every day open our minds further, that um, our picture of who you are may come closer to the reality, that we may be cleansed and purified by that, that we 
will, if possible, accept your call to be priests as well, that we may reveal this great knowledge of who you are to those around us. In your name we pray. Amen.